This is No Planet B. I'm Wyatt. And I'm Brianna. Today, we talk about an article that got retracted that we have spoken about in a previous episode. Yeah, we found an article earlier in the year about how climate change can be caused by and uh, predicted by movements in the sun. And that article in March got retracted for being fundamentally incorrect. And so we spoke to Ken Rice, who was involved in the retraction of the article. And he is the personal chair of computational astrophysics at the uh, Royal Observatory in Edinburgh. So yeah, it was a great episode. Uh, Can't wait for you to hear it. So when did you first catch wind of this article? I was actually at a meeting. I was, I was spending a couple of weeks in Austria. And I remember sitting in the back of this talk, thinking, wow, this is a quite a remarkable claim to make. And getting slightly confused <laughs> and thinking, is it possible that I misunderstand this? And I actually mm. sat in the back of this, this sort of seminar and set up a simulation, thinking, well, I've got a code that will actually simulate the solar system. So I can just check this exactly. And and of course, it turned out that what they'd said was wrong. And then I contacted them privately and said, well, you know, this is clearly wrong. And I sent them some figures. Mm. And it kind of snowballed from there a little bit. And um, I didn't sort of make the criticism public until that conversation with the lead author had sort of run to the end. And it was clear that I was not going to get through to them about this problem. And then I wrote a blog post. And then I think I posted something on PubPeer. And it sort of snowballed from there. So for someone who hasn't read the article, what exactly are the authors trying to say? Okay, this particular group have for quite a long time argued that they can predict this sort of solar cycle. And so they propose that, you know, most of climate change is a consequence of solar variations and not due to us increasing atmospheric CO2. So now that's almost certainly wrong. But they then had this idea that, um, or they noticed, I think, that if you, you know, you have a sort of a a center of mass of the solar system, there is a sort of a point, if you like. The classic image we have is the planets go around the sun, but strictly speaking, everything orbits the common center of mass. So even the sun is wobbling around this common center of mass or the barycenter. You can think of the barycenter kind of like this. If you wanted to balance a ruler on a post, you would place the ruler exactly on its center on the post. If you wanted to do that with something more complicated like a sledgehammer, and you wanted to place that horizontally on this post, if you put it on the center, it would tip towards its heavy side. If you put it just on the heavy side, it would tip towards the handle. So there's a spot in between the heavy side and the handle, very, very close to the heavy side because it has the most mass where you could balance this. That's the center of gravity. Our solar system has something similar where the sun isn't the exact focus of where the planets are orbiting because they also have mass and it throws off that center of gravity, pushes it a little bit outside of the sun. And the heavier planets are going to move that center of gravity more than the other ones. So Saturn, Jupiter are going to be moving this barycenter. The sun is also going to orbit around this barycenter and that's what these authors are claiming is going to cause solar variation. And it's mostly being perturbed by Jupiter and and the big planets, you know, Jupiter and Saturn. And so it it orbits this common center of mass with a period of order 10 or 11 years, which is the orbital period of Jupiter. 
And the orbit it makes around that common center of mass tends to change a little bit depending on the relative positions of Jupiter and Saturn, right? If they're on the same side, then it's slightly further away than if they're on opposite sides. Mm-hmm. And so it tends to sort of expand and contract a little bit. Now, of course, in reality, what's happening is the Earth and the Sun are doing that together because the Sun, the Earth is also being perturbed by the bigger planets on the outside of the solar system. And so this has no bearing on the relative distance between the Earth and the Sun. So they claimed that this motion of the sun around the, the barycenter around the solar system would change the average distance of the sun to the earth. And as this was going to expand because the positions of Jupiter and Saturn were going to change, meant that the sun would be getting closer and closer to the earth and that future warming was going to be a consequence of this. And it's just complete. And the orbit it makes around that common center of mass tends to change a little bit depending on the relative positions of Jupiter and Saturn, right? If they're on the same side, then it's slightly yeah. further away than if they're on opposite sides. And so it tends to sort of expand and contract a little bit. Now, of course, in reality, what's happening is the Earth and the Sun are doing that together because the Sun, the Earth is also being perturbed by the bigger planets on the outside of the solar system. And so this has no bearing on the relative distance between the Earth and the Sun. So you like talk to them. Yeah. And and I thought I'll do this sort of semi-professionally because, you know, Mm -hmm. this is clearly a problem. So surely if I send them some data from a simulation I've run, and I'll even send them some figures to show that I've tested the simulation. So it's clearly reproducing the bits that are right. Yeah. And then, you know, they can obviously potentially say, oh, my goodness me, we've made a mistake. We'll contact the journal. And then everything goes away, right? You say, fine, no mm. worries. Happy to help. And, and you know, everyone's happy. Or as happened in this case, you know, deny that there's a problem and accuse my simulations of being wrong. Um, oh, man. I did try to keep it, you know, you know, let's have a sort of semi-professional chat amongst, you know, academics and uh, see if we can resolve it that way. And that didn't work. Mm. Didn't think it would be that involved for some reason. You mean involved in, in that sort of level of discussion or? Yeah, I guess like how personal you, uh, personal and professional, like how you're emailing them privately. Yeah, I mean, in, th- in this case, I'm, I'm, <laughs> it's an interesting thing because I've been, I mean, I've been in academia for quite a long time now. And yeah. I'm, astronomy is a very, generally a very pleasant environment. So I'm very used to the oh. idea of just contacting people and people do the same to me. And you, people ask if they can have some of your code or some of your data or ask you a question. And I don't think in all my years working in this field have I ever had any sort of particularly contentious email exchanges amongst colleagues. It's yeah. mainly in the sort of climate context that that sort of becomes a little <laughs> bit more contentious. And so... Oh, no. I, I have. It's been rather odd. So in this case, I, I, I know the lead author a little bit, having emailed them in the past. Um, and so that was one reason why I thought, well, I'll contact them rather. And, and you like to think, well, maybe it's just a mistake. So mm-hmm. rather than writing a blog post and publicly criticizing it up front, you know, let them know in advance. It seems like a reasonable thing to do. Um, I've become a little bit more circumspect, I guess, in the climate context, because I have had email exchanges that have gone badly wrong very quickly and that have surprised me where you think, oh, why did that email exchange go so badly wrong so fast? Really? Yeah, just odd ones. Very odd. You know, where you think, you, you know, you, I've had ones where I've emailed somebody to say, you know, apologies for that Twitter discussion getting out of hand and then the email discussion getting out of hand and you think, okay, well, that was very strange. That didn't work. <laughs> so, so sometimes I do think, actually, there's no point in, you know, contacting the person directly because it feels really? like the kind of discussion that won't work. People read too much into email exchanges or something and they, you know, end up 
contentious before you've even had a chance to really start a discussion. So, Are the um, contentious emails that you're talking about usually climate related? Yeah, yeah. So mostly it's in that context, right? So yeah, you'll email somebody and, and, and it just ends up being more sort of contentious and unpleasant. And <laughs> That's wild. Why do you think it's the climate related topics? I don't know. Um, <laughs> that's that's crazy to me. It, it is odd. Well, I mean, it is often with people that you disagree with, right? So mm. I must I must say that mostly in this case, the emails that I had with the lead author of this paper were fine, other yeah. than them telling me I was being stupid and wrong. They weren't sort of dreadfully unpleasant or anything. But it does seem like people have quite strong views. And so it's almost as if it's hard to disagree with people, I guess, because people then see that as a fight rather than just as, okay, we disagree about something, which is fine. Mm. Well, for what it's worth, it sounds like what you did was very considerate to be emailing them personally. It shows that you weren't trying, you're not trying to like start anything or create a hostile environment. <laughs> yeah, it sounds, sounds friendly. So what was your initial goal in contacting the authors? So in the UK, if you read an article in some of the tabloids talking about the possibility of a future ice age, then invariably they they reference the work of that group. Right? So they are the leading in promoting a future possibility that seems highly, highly, highly unlikely given the direction we're going in. And you sort of think, well, imagine if that group were to turn around at some point and say, you know what, we've been wrong, actually. This isn't going to happen because we've misunderstood something. You think, well, that'd be quite a big change, be a really good change, right? you know, that they'd been working on a topic and they'd been promoting a particular idea and then they'd come to realize that that idea was almost certainly wrong would be you know a very interesting shift it's not likely to happen but i often think it would be good if you could maintain some kind of discussion in the hope that people who've been say promoting particular ideas that are probably wrong admit that because that's a lot better than them sticking to those ideas when it's obvious that they're wrong but that's a bit naive, probably. So they they never ended up doing that, and then it just got taken down without them admitting it was wrong? So there was rather an awkward thing in that one of the authors did withdraw. There were four authors. One of them has withdrawn and admitted that they don't want to be on the paper. The other three were not happy with the retraction. And they, they did a correction to it where they reduced the impact of this change and still managed to get it wrong because they... They basically downloaded some data from another package, and it looks like what they did was an aliasing problem, right? So let's see if I can explain this properly. But uh, the Earth's orbit isn't entirely circular. It's very slightly eccentric, right? So if you plot the distance from the sun to the Earth at a particular point in the orbit, and then you try to plot that again the following year, if you don't quite get the orbital period right, you will see that the orbit appears to be getting smaller or bigger, but it's only a consequence of you not quite catching it at the right point in the orbit, the following data point, right? And so they were claiming, oh, yes, we've made a mistake, but it's actually still in effect. Well, well no, all, you, all they did was get their data plotting wrong. So what they were plotting appeared to show the Earth-Sun distance changing, but it was just because they weren't actually selecting the correct data point in there you know, annually, they were selecting it a very slightly off one year. And so it was an entirely an artifact of their plotting, not a real effect. So they did try to mm. make a correction, but they did it in a way where they still made a mistake and still claimed it was an effect. And, and it was just, and I think the journal went, no, this is not, this is not good. <laughs> and they yeah. sent it, the journal sent it out to other reviewers. So they didn't just do it. They sent it to other reviewers who, who looked at it and agreed with the criticism. One of my biggest questions is if, 
I guess, and this can become a vague question. How do the journals validate articles? If this one got through and was published, what did that process look like if it was so wrong? Well, I think, I mean, this is a bit like, was it democracy as the worst possible, you know, style of government apart from all others? It's a bit like that. <laughs> Peer review is the worst way of checking papers apart from all others, really. It's it's a, it's a not a perfect process at all. People spend ages writing a paper and the reviewers get, I mean, I'd review papers and how much time do I spend? You, you maybe get half a day or a day to spend on a paper. You've got so much other work to do. You can't possibly sit and reproduce what they've done because you just mm. don't have the time. So it's not all that surprising necessarily that papers get through that aren't very good. This was surprising because it was so obviously a problem. On the other hand, I can imagine somebody who wasn't familiar with, say, this context, wasn't familiar that the authors were had a reputation for promoting ideas about global warming that were almost certainly wrong, may not have looked at it as closely as somebody who, say, was aware of that and saying, OK, what are they trying to say this time? Um, so it, it didn't hugely surprise me that, that it got through because, you know, peer review is imperfect. Um, I was almost mm -hmm. impressed that they actually went as far as retracting because I didn't think they would. I thought they'd just let it slide eventually and give up. But so the fact that they actually sent it out for an extra review and actually acted on it, I thought was quite interesting um, and, and, you know, quite a good thing to have done. Yeah. Is there any possibility that these type of articles are just purposefully trying to spread misinformation? Or do you think that's not the point? Well, I don't think these are people who are knowingly um, promoting misinformation. Science, of course, has this interesting thing where, you know, it, it, you want to be someone who's doing something different. So there is a tendency for people to say, well, this is the prevailing view. Can I publish papers that challenge that? That's not a bad thing. It can be a good thing if it's done well. Mm -hmm. It becomes a bad thing when it's done badly. Um, and I, I think there is a tendency amongst certain people to just not like the whole global warming scare and to think, no, this can't be right. It's, it's They probably think it's politically motivated. And so they're looking at alternatives. And so I, mm. I, I think it's genuine. I, it's unfortunate because some of the mistakes are so obvious. You do wonder how, how do you convince yourself that that makes sense when it appears that no one else agrees with you. But with some exceptions, I don't think that my, my impression is not that this is some kind of purposeful thing to try and spread misinformation. I think it is a genuine belief that there's a real problem with the, the, the prevailing view and that they're, they've got a, you know, a different view that they think makes more sense. That sounds like the most likely option. Most people are trying to be decent, I think, in the world, even the people we disagree with. <laughs> yeah, that's sweet. The, so I have a, we have a listener question. What could a, a non-expert with limited time do to pick out misinformation in science? I said, wow, that's a, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> there are some sites that are quite good, right? That, that you can, mm. you, you know, it, it's often worth Googling and saying, checking, you know, is this correct? And, and you, you can often find sites that will go through it. The hard part is then, I guess, knowing whether you trust a site or not. Because, mm. you know, I right. think there are that are excellent and then I hear other people saying, oh, they don't trust that site because of X. And you think, well, OK. So if you really want to, uh, then there's plenty of information out there. Of course, there's plenty of misinformation as well. So the hard part is, I guess, establishing whether or not you trust the site that's explaining why a particular bit of misinformation is misinformation or not. And uh, I guess expertise partly matters. It always amazes me how 
there are some people who clearly have no expertise who mm-hmm. promote ideas and get accepted by some people. You would think that people would stop and say, hold on, why is this not the views held by academic experts? <laughs> yeah. But I guess there's a trust issue, right? People trust certain sources over other sources for various reasons. Um, but I, I guess just, it, I, I think it is a very difficult thing, but you know, you can go and find sites that will make quite, con- I, I think there's some good sites that explain why certain things are not true. And if people are willing to find them, then the chances are they will eventually work out which sites they trust and which sites are good at, at explaining why something isn't correct. Well, would you say that publications that get taken down, is that a frequent thing or is that pretty rare? So, so I, I think retract, I mean, I think retractions are generally quite rare in, in some respects. Often they get caught out by either the authors themselves going, okay, we've made a big mistake and they retract it themselves mm. or something genuinely fraudulent, right? Like the data was made up and somebody tries to reproduce it, can't do it, delves into it and discovers that this was completely fraudulent. And and that does happen. So if you look at Retraction Watch, you'll notice that people will retract papers when others point out that the data clearly can't be correct. Or, or they'll do things like they'll find that a figure or a, an image in a paper is the same as an image in another paper, even though they're meant to be different images. And that's a red flag. And then there's investigations and papers get taken down for that reason. Mm. In this case, where it's not something obviously fraudulent or plagiarism or anything like that. It's it's a fundamental mistake. And often you might argue, well, mistakes happen. And this is my normal tendency is mistakes happen. And, and so science evolves and you shouldn't be going back through the scientific literature and, and pulling papers with mistakes in them because that's how we learned, right? So mistakes can be a good thing. So you don't want to start saying, okay, that paper had a mistake retracted because actually the mistake in that paper might be what led the next group to look at it again and fix it, right? So that can be part of the process. Um, I think what made this one unusual, you know, unusual was it wasn't just a silly mistake. It was a fundamental mistake. It's kind of, it's violating the sort of thing we teach in first year physics and first year astronomy courses. So you think that's not just a mistake. That's, that's really quite serious. That's something that a serious academic should have known was wrong. And I think that's what made it more unusual. But but it is quite rare to retract a paper on the basis of a second set of reviewers saying, no, this is wrong, rather than somebody saying this was actually fraudulent. Um, so, so I think in that sense, it was relatively rare. So I have one more listener question. This one comes from Dylan, and it says, are there any repercussions for publishing bad science? Yeah, interesting. It, it, my, my sort of cynical sense is not really. <laughs> A lot of it is about getting noticed. And so um, there, do, there doesn't seem to be many repercussions. Reputations do get, do develop, right? So it depends what one means. If you if you have an academic job and you're publishing and you're getting noticed, often universities like that. And they don't really think very long and hard about whether the work is of high quality or not. The scientific community can um become aware of it. So you can become someone whose reputation within your community becomes slightly weakened. But on the other hand, it depends on mm-hmm. what you want to do. I mean, in this case, as I said earlier, that the authors are very often quoted in the British media as promote as suggesting a, a, an ice age is coming. And despite the fact that mm-hmm. no one and no one else in the scientific community believe that's correct, they get quite a lot of media coverage because they're the ones who keep publishing these papers. So if that's what you're going for, if that's a reputation you want, it can be quite successful. So, you know, it's, it, 
it isn't obvious what sort of damage it does to people when you publish bad science because you know it it it's such a niche thing for people to know and it it disappears fairly quickly in a way so and I guess academia mm-hmm. has always got this academic freedom thing, which is a good thing, mostly, right? People don't get fired for publishing a bad paper because, you know, you're meant to have the freedom to explore and, and re- research what you want to research. And, and so th- this does then mean that you have the freedom to do things that are horribly wrong. And there's little in the way that, that, that there's few repercussions, which I suspect overall is the right thing to do. But it can be a bit frustrating, obviously. OK, I, I have one more question. that i just thought of from that um do you think because when we research for no planet b sometimes we'll hit journals that are blocked by a paywall or a subscription service and that kind of that can make it hard for like us as science communicators to try to teach other people do you think journals to any extent should be public and free for everyone Yes, I think the journal publishing industry is remarkably successful in a very bad way in many respects, um, in that they're almost entirely publicly funded in the sense that the research is done with public money mostly, and the reviewing is done by academics who are mostly publicly funded, and and yet, as you say, a lot of them have paywalls. And I, I do think that research should be open. Um, I don't know how we fix this. Um, Astronomy has had the archive for a very long time, for since the early 1990s. So we always put our, our papers online for the public. Mm-hmm. It's not the exact final version, but it's close enough to not matter. Some other areas are doing the same thing, um, and the journals don't seem to mind. But there are other areas where they don't do that. And you do have the problem that the papers are technically behind a paywall wall, and, and it's hard to access the papers. In your case, of course, it's easy enough to email an author, and mostly they they're, they send mm-hmm. copies. Um, but for the general public, yes, it can be a problem if you're trying to access original research. And I do think that we should find a way to insist that journal publications are open to the public. And there's a big, there's a lot of pressure in Europe to do this. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I'm not sure it's going the right way, and I don't know if they're changing it or not. But really. Well, in the sense that they're they're trying to do it in quite a strict way. So, for example, there is a possibility that the the archive that, say, astronomy and physics has been using for a long time will no longer be acceptable as open access. Mm -hmm. And you think, well, hold on, this has been one of the most successful ways of providing copies of papers to anyone who wants one. And you've just decided to implement a new open access thing that makes it not eligible. So there are concerns that things that have worked very well will suddenly fall foul of this new this new thing. But in principle, the idea is good that we should start to mandate that all publicly funded research that's published is published in a forum that's open access. Um, mm. But I don't know how you do it in a way that doesn't then run into all sorts of other problems. Um, and there's issues with funding as well. I think they want to make it part of the funding. But if you have collaborations in other parts of the world who don't have the same rules, then how do you, you know, could you end up in a position where a collaborator in another part of the world publishes a paper, doesn't put it in an open access journal, suddenly your funders get cross with you and start taking your funding away. You've got to, you know, there's all these little loopholes. You've got to be careful you don't trip up and end up doing more harm than harm than good. But in principle, I think yes definitely should be open but i i don't have any good Mm -hmm. ideas other than what's worked for astronomy for a long time which is basically 
have a place where you put all your papers, irrespective of the journal you publish them in. I absolutely agree. I wish things were more accessible for the general public. Um, And that would be a great idea for there just to be one huge archive. Well, I think there's also the other issue that um, some of these, and this is getting maybe slightly more political than it should be, but (laughs) some of these publishing houses are making an awful lot of money. I mean, huge, their, their profit as a fraction of revenue is enormous, like tens of percent, if I remember correctly. But all the mm-hmm. money is effectively public, right? It's, it's being funneled through university libraries and they're paying for subscriptions. And you think, well, surely, you know, there must be a way to do this that doesn't funnel so much money into the, these publishing companies who are basically just repositories for the work done in publicly funded research communities. And, you know, it, there, there's a huge cost to us. So not only is it not open to the public always? It's actually the public who are funding it. So it's fundamentally seems wrong that it's effectively taxpayer funded research that's leading to these publications. And we are paying these publishing houses to publish them and then they're locking them away behind a paywall. Mm-hmm. I think there's lots of arguments why there's got to be a better way of doing it, but uh, I, I'm not sure I know what it is. Thank you so much for talking to us. This has been very interesting. Very yeah, fun. thank you so much. <laughs> well, that's the end of our program. Thank you so much for listening to No Planet B. If you want to get in touch, you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at No Planet Bcast. You can also email at noplanetbfsu at gmail.com. And yeah, we hope you all have a great rest of your dinner. And take care. And bye. <laughs>